Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Mira Nair about her essay, The Desire Tree, which appears in issue 24 of The Common, out this week. Mira Nair is the author of Video Stories, which was a Washington Post Best Book of the Year. Her work has appeared in Guernica, The Three Penny Review, Calix, The New York Times, The Guardian, The Washington Post, NPR's Selected Shorts, and elsewhere. She lives in Jackson Heights in Queens, New York. Mira Nair, thanks for joining us. Hi, Emily. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. We're so glad you're here. Would you just set the scene for our conversation? Describe where you're calling from now. I am in my bedroom in Jackson Heights, Queens, New York, um, and I just walked in about an about an hour ago, and you know I was thinking about this podcast, and I was thinking also about how much I love Jackson Heights. You know, it's like the cacophony of it all, the babel, the the different languages that come at you, the different people. It is considered one of the most diverse neighborhoods in probably the whole world. So, you know, the moment you step off the train, um, it's just this like amazing, amazing um, variety of people from all over the world. And I always love that walk from the train um, to my house. Um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful day outside the window. It's um, bright and sort of cold. It's one of those lovely, crisp fall days in New York, which, uh, you know, fall is really the best season in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a beautiful day today here in Western Mass as well. Um, Yeah, you're making me miss New York. (laughs) Um, I would love to start off with a reading from your essay. Would you read the first few paragraphs for us? Sure. Happy to. The Desire Tree. By the time the car stops at the end of the dirt road, we've been jolting along for an hour. Before us is the banyan tree we have come to see. Its giant trunk surrounded by hanging roots, its distant crown shutting out the sky. It is summer in Kerala, and the world is liquid and shimmery with heat. The the roads and fields are parched, waiting, suspended in a burning delirium for the moment the monsoon will break. My aunt Sudha and I have just driven through miles of sun-blasted paddy fields, but the abrupt immensity of the tree makes the light feel shadowed, as if dusk has fallen at noon. A hushed feeling comes over me as the dark, looming presence asserts itself. 
As the two of us step out of the car, Sudha falls quiet. Her pretty face takes on a devout, absorbed expression. I am not particularly spiritual, but I feel like I am in what the Celts call a thin place, where the boundary and epochs feel porous, and worlds both seen and unseen seem to exist at once. I wonder if Sudha is also experiencing what I am feeling, that sense of being near a mystery, something beyond ordinary understanding. Thank you for reading that. I love that that idea of the thin place. Mm-hmm. Um, for our listeners who may not have read your essay yet, would you describe what the piece is about? Uh, yeah. So um, I guess, you know, art is different for everybody. But uh, <laughs> uh, for me, the piece is about um, the locus of um, mystery, I guess, you know, of, of, of nature and this tree that is takes on this like mysterious quality for me and I'm trying to make sense of it of that experience for myself and it's also about grief and coming to an understanding of that grief um yeah that's great that's a great summary um what inspired you to to start work on this essay can you talk about how that the first draft came together yes um so um I guess, you know, the first draft for me was literally started with five sentences. Um, and I have those sentences in, in my c- computer. It was, it was literally scribbled. It's like sort of became the heart of the essay. It's about mm-hmm. this, just a description of the tree and um, you, just the fact that it was like, you know, I felt that it was between earth and sky and how it was rooted in, in in like I felt like the roots went deep down and then about the um, the houses, you know, like the little wooden houses that I talk about that are mm-hmm. hanging from the tree. And just that idea was basically the, the sort of the seed of the essay. But um, I had been thinking about the essay for a very long time because that tree would keep coming back to me in some way. And I'm sort of a little obsessed with trees. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know why. It's just I've always had like a sort of weird kind of attachment to trees and, 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 you know, grew up with a lot of them around me because I used to um, go home to Kerala, which whereas my family is from in India. And we have this, like a big farm and mango grove. And I spend my childhood tucked up into inside on some branches reading a book, Mm -hmm. you know, so I've (laughs) had like a very physical kind of relationships with trees. So this tree was, um, I don't know, I just, it just sort of, kept coming back to me and I wanted to write about it. And also that the that the image of those kind of wooden houses and cradles and um, all hanging from the branches never went away from my mind. And then when, um, you know, Sudha died, I had to sort of put it away because I couldn't bear to think about her not being in the world anymore. Mm-hmm. And then it took a while for me to actually come back to the essay and start thinking about it again. Yeah, that's uh, very understandable. I'm trying to think for, for our listeners, how would you describe this tree? As, I mean, I sort of think of it as as like uh, a a tree, uh, like a hypothetically like a wish granting tree, like wishing mm-hmm. in a wishing well or something like that. But can you talk more about that? Um so- So the, you know, the tree itself is like this incredibly giant tree. You cannot see 
be canopy. I mean, you have to really like go way, way back and tilt your head back to be able Mm -hmm. to actually look up and see where it ends sort of, you know, you can see the sky in between the leaves, of course, but it's a Mm -hmm. very, very large tree. Um, And it's uh, in, in Indian culture, trees are really worshipped. You know, we are our religion. I mean, Hinduism comes from like pagan roots and, and we are very much situated in nature, in natural things. So trees get worshipped all the time. I mean, stones get worshipped. People pick up a stone from a river, put vermilion, like paint on it and start worshipping it. And that becomes a god, you know. And mm-hmm. and uh, so like the the. Trees are always seen as sort of divine in a weird way. And I, I actually think it has to do with environmental consciousness too. Like if you make a tree a, a divine thing, you're not going to cut it down, you know. So, um, but with the with the banyan tree, it is it plays a part in um, the culture very much. It's a gathering place. It's a wish-granting place. People tie their wishes to the tree. Um, they sometimes try, you know, in other, in the northern parts of India, they actually tie veils to the tree to hoping to be married. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's like they interact with the tree in a very, very intimate way. Um, and it's only with the banyan tree. It's not with all trees. The banyan tree has a special mm-hmm. place in the culture. And that's so interesting. Um, I'm sort of wondering while I was reading this, do you think that um, that the, the same people who are hanging, you know, hanging veils on the tree or, or mm-hmm. putting things on the tree to ask for wishes, do you think that they're sharing those wants and desires with people around them? Or is this sort of like a place where they can come and be honest about their desires? I, yeah. I just, I don't, I don't have a sense of, of what it would be like there. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think the society is one in which we talk openly about uh, needs and wants. Um, it, it is not something that is discussed um, openly, like I want this or I want that. Mm-hmm. And I always saw the tree as the, the place that they could manifest that desire, that wanting mm-hmm. or yearning. You know, um, I, I kind of think um, of this, the tree, you know, it's about um, where your reality you can yearn for a reality to be, to be different from the current one that we are currently inhabiting. So that tree becomes like a place for yearning for what could be or what might have been, you know. In, 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 to me, that's how they see the tree in a weird way because people don't talk openly about the fact that, oh, I'm dying to get married or, oh, I wish I had a house or, you know, maybe, mm-hmm. or I wish I could have a baby. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not a common in conversation. We are private people. Mm-hmm. Um, and also with Asian cultures, you know, there's a lot about like not being vulnerable, not revealing, like not losing face. That's a big thing, right? So um, it's it's part of the kind of cultural, I guess, landscape to not be so open about your feelings. I was, I remember when I first came to the U.S., I was incredibly surprised about the things that people would tell you within five <laughs> minutes of meeting you, you know? Yeah. I was like, oh, I would never say that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, and we don't reveal things about our families or, you know, say things about our parents. It's, it's, a, it's a different uh, kind of way mm. of living, I guess. And so for me, the, the way those desires are manifested so openly at this tree because it's anonymous. No one knows who tied that you know, set of bangles to the, the tree or who put up that house and who's yearning for a baby. No one knows. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. you know, it's done quietly, privately, maybe with a good friend. 
and then they are gone and it stays there and they hope that it gets to the gods or at least in my imagination i think they're hoping it gets to the gods mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting what you say i i grew up in new england and so i always thought we were pretty closed closed off about sharing our feelings or being open about those things like you were saying and, and then i moved to england and i was like oh actually we're pretty free with that stuff <laughs> <laughs> i know <laughs> Yeah. So when I was sort of summarizing this piece to myself, you know, preparing for this podcast, I was thinking of it as a piece sort of about grief and loss, um, because that's definitely a part of it. But you know, when I was rereading it, I, I, I didn't really feel that grief was like the central thing or the center of the piece. And, and it, it was this, this pull, this like attention to the act of wanting, like to the mm-hmm. act of longing for something. And then I sort of got turned around and was like, isn't that kind of what grief is? Like grief is sort of wanting things to be different or, or wanting to sort of change the ending. I was just yeah. wondering if you, you had any thoughts on that in terms of this piece or in general. Yeah, you know, I the it, it's so strange what happens when you start writing, right? You start at one place and you end up at another place. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I started writing about the tree, you know, for me, I was just sort of thinking about my experience with the tree and what and the the experience of the vill- how the villagers were experiencing the tree or interacting with mm-hmm. the tree and how far it away it was from the way I saw the tree. Um, and then, you know, then Sudha came into the piece and because I had gone to see the tree with her um, and then then it suddenly it occurred to me that, oh, I'm finally able to write about her and I'm writing about her from a place of longing to have her back in the world, you mm-hmm. know, in, in just trying to make her come alive on the page. So I think it is in the end about grief, but it was also, it was, it's so strange that I, I also felt so much joy from just bringing her back alive onto the mm-hmm. page and, you know, sort of writing about her. Um, so that, that I think, Yes, it. I think grief is very much a part of it, but it's also a kind of a in in for me. It was coming to terms with that grief and sort of stepping away from it and looking at it, and then being able to write, um, you know, all the different aspects of it, like basically the accident and then the the just sort of looking at her as she had been alive in the world, and then thinking of what could have been with her in the world. You know. Mm. Yeah, I, I felt so much uh, tenderness in this piece for, for Suda, the, the moments of, of teasing that you have between the two of you and these specific memories, you know, painting her toes and, mm-hmm. and these details that just really bring her to life. But I was thinking, you know, I was, you know, putting myself in, in your shoes as a writer. Was it really difficult to decide which which details to include? I mean, they must they must just come flooding back when you start writing something like this. Yeah, you know, as I told you, I was I was I I didn't. I couldn't deal with the fact that she had died in this really horrific way. Right, yeah. So I wasn't, I wouldn't think about it. And, um, but I, um, you know, bits and pieces of her would come back to me as like the oddest moments. <laughs> they were so sensory and I would hear her giggle in my ear, you know, she had the most amazing giggle. And and then I would get like a sudden clear picture of her toes, the like exactly what they look like. And then like the, I would get the sound of her kitchen in my head, which is always when because like crazy clutter and clatter, like very noisy, um, because she would just be like this like whirlwind in the kitchen, and so so then I just had I just started writing those bits and pieces of her that came on to me, and you know the just basically then I could enter back into her, but in this 
this kind of odd kind of way where there was just bits and pieces first and then I could I'm just going to inter- interrupt you I'm so sorry um I just looked up and it says that you are offline which is not a good sign oh gosh okay I mean the good news is it didn't say that like two minutes ago so I uh-huh. think this is a very recent problem but let me so uh, I want to say that I avoided thinking about Suda for the longest time because her um you know the 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 way she died was so horrific um, and I, I wasn't even there, so I, I, all I had was these pictures in my head, which I didn't want to deal with. But um, as time passed, you know, at odd moments, her giggle would come back to me. Uh, she had like the greatest giggle, and um, <laughs> I had a very like I had clear, I had a clear picture of her toes. Um, I would see her like you know, sort of walking across the fields to us. Um, so it was weird. She came back to me in these bits and pieces. Um, they were like a sense of like sound and visuals mostly, and it would be like the clatter of her kitchen um, and things like that. So, so you know, when I could then deal with her, sort of started thinking about her again, then I decided to go all in, sort of just start thinking about her and, you know, sort of through that process, sort of put her back together um, onto the page kind of thing where, mm-hmm. you know, sort of create a a whole picture, not just these little kaleidoscopic bits that was happening before. So th- that's, that's, I think it was, it was it's, it's, uh, you know, the question is, how did I decide what memories to include? I think I decided that I would just um, put what came to me before into the piece, because, and I also thought this is the way to bring her alive. Like, you know, you think about what parts of a character to include. Because even mm-hmm. as if I'm writing from a place of emotion, I'm also a writer. And I'm also writing from, like, as a, you know, someone who revises over and over again. And right. and so I'm, then I started thinking, okay, as a character, how best to bring her out? What parts do you include, right? And I'm not one of those Dickensian writers who goes from top to bottom giving you a description. I want her to right. come alive in, in the bits that I give you. So um, that that's that's how. And then, you know, I did write certain scenes out just for my own sake. And then what I do is I write the scene out and all it's, you know, in length. And then I take everything out and just keep like the heart of that scene just mm-hmm. because it's an essay. It's not fiction. And I'm not... You know, I, I just need to give you a glimpse of what it is like being her or being with her and then move out again into the into what the essay is trying to say. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's great that you say that, because my next question was was going to be about about length, because I think I don't know if it sounds funny to say this, but one of my favorite things about this piece is how short it is. It's sort of a brief piece, uh, I think maybe twenty three hundred words. Mm-hmm. Um it feels like it just stays like just long enough in each section and each section feels very essential. Um, you know, we get just enough of, of, of the tree and of Suda and, and, you know, your, your experience as the writer. And I just, yeah, I, I was wondering if it had sort of come together as a short piece or if you had sort of carved, carved it out of something longer, but it, it sounds like it, it was originally something longer. Uh, I mean, longer in the sense for my revision sakes, but you know, it, it basically it it's it started as I said with five lines. Mm-hmm. Um, That's true. Yeah, and I was just like, okay, I just need to get this on the page. I don't know what this is about, and I just started from there. And this is a lot of what my process is like. I usually just get like 
some kind of sentence just appears for me, you know, just it's always about the language and how this, that sentence works. And then I just start mm-hmm. sort of following the sentence. Like I write the next sentence and the next sentence and the next sentence. Mm-hmm. And I'm sort of just sort of like sort of weaving it, you know, in a, in a weird way. And then when I think, oh, okay, here, I think I, you know, I just write everything down, you know, sort of just like a, just throw everything onto the page um, and and just let it sit there and see what happens. But this this um, essay, weirdly, I always had the ending, you know. Um, so I always had that ending of us sort of standing there and of me thinking about what could have been if she had lived, you know, that or what my my uh, wish for her would have been. That that was always the ending. So I sort of mm-hmm. had to bring the essay to that point. Um, and I actually struggled trying to fill it in to make it longer because I was like, it was getting there pretty quickly. And I was like, actually, I need to go back and sort of think about how do I, you know, bring in all the stuff that I want to talk about, the, the, the sort of like the the relationship to the tree and what trees mean in the culture and and how I'm thinking of this as this axis mandai between the the you know the nether world and and the celestial world and all of that so um the essay keep wanting to end and i don't know if that's just me but i mm-hmm. had to sort of stop the essay from like going too quickly towards the end and sort of slow it down and think about it for a, a longer period and then write out the middle bits much more you know so i had the beginning and the end and it was the i worked a lot on the on the beginning i, I mean on the middle yeah Mm. Oh, that's that's really interesting to hear. I almost never have the problem of a, a piece being too short. <laughs> They're always too long. <laughs> yeah, I, I try to. I, I'm a. I'm a. I guess I could say I'm an economical writer in some ways. Mm. You know, so um, I have to sort of um, force myself to make them longer because I'm always trying to say, oh, do I really need to say this too? You know. <laughs> so, mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. I, th- I think one of the most common edits that um, our nonfiction editor, Liz Witty, gives often to people is is asking nonfiction writers to put a little more of themselves on the page mm-hmm. and maybe like explain a little more or, or what their connection is or why they're writing this piece and that yeah. kind of thing. And I think, um, yeah, maybe there isn't as much of an instinct to sort of put yourself in there. But obviously with a piece like this, it's so personal. There's, there was never any chance of it not feeling personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there anything else you can tell us about your revision process, either for this piece or in general? You know, are there strategies that you, you give to your students when you're talking about revising? Yeah, I mean, uh, so for myself, you know, I'm always thinking in terms of vividness, you know, sort of um, like how vivid is this on the page? Can you see it? Um, and so a lot of my revision work or whatever would be like to take out all the extraneous kind of uh, kind of flabby bits or the adverbs, you know, things like that. Um, so, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the way I work is that I, the first draft is always the kitchen sink, you know. It's just like throw everything mm-hmm. in there. Throw every everything that's coming to you. So that'll be like this huge mass. I mean, you know, I but I won't look at it. I'll just leave it alone. 
And that at that moment of the writing, when, you know, you're just writing it, it's the high, it's like the joy, the mad love, right? You feel for your gorgeous sentences, like you're so in love with the piece. You're like, oh my God, I am, I am the most amazing writer in the world, you know? (laughs) And so then I just like leave it there. I never look at it again for many months because I don't want to, because I know I, if I'm still in that you know mode of like oh wow this is so great kind of thing Mm -hmm. and then um you know i the then the revision is you know basically the cold hard look at the big mess you've made right so i think chris offit calls it a a cruel and ruthless objectivity i just love that you know (laughs) (laughs) that kind of like you know it's like you have to sort of look at this dangerous love and see whether it's any good you know whether it's good for you or not kind of thing and uh um, so I, like I read, I mean, my own process is I read the sentences aloud a lot. Um, I think about structure. I think about POV point of view. I think about scene. Um, I, I, I'm always thinking about, um, is this draft like some self-indulgent kind of thing that is serving me right. or is it serving the story? Right. So, um, you know, I had a, a teacher, Yale doctoral, um, the famous, oh, wow. amazing Yale doctoral was my mm-hmm. thesis advisor. And uh, wow. yes, <laughs> and he, uh, I have so many funny stories about him, but he, he, <laughs> he said this amazing thing, which has really stuck with me. You know, he said, when you start reading and rereading your own writing, be conscious of where your eyes start rushing through the paragraph. Mm. And he said, that's where the problem is. You know, like you don't want to read. You're like, ah, this is, you know, so like basically if that's boring to you, it's boring to the reader. And I'm really, really conscious of that. Like I always read and reread. And I I think of this as almost like a weird kind of process where I will be like combing over, like I'm combing through and combing through and combing through. I take a long time to write my pieces. You know, they're not like sometimes some in very, very rare occasions, they, they arrive fully finished, but then that's really rare. But I take a mm-hmm. long time to sort of go through and like I, I think of it as this weird like combing, you know, <laughs> the image I yeah. have of it, these, it's so weird, but um, it's like these monkeys who look through each other's fur, you know. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I see myself like that, like going through the piece, you know, and uh, anyway, so that's that's how I look at my own work. I, I it's It's a very slow process but it's also a process where I'm really really looking at every paragraph and cutting out things that I, that don't work I'm pretty I I, I have I do have I think a cruel and ruthless objectivity I've come to that because I, I I'm like okay this piece is done it's now like something that I need to shape it's it's not me anymore you know is this mm-hmm. character really speaking to people I try to have I had to even make Suda into a character I mean she's my beloved aunt who's no longer in the world but you know I had to make her into a character to make her be the person she is now in this essay that's true yeah yeah and with my students you know all I they, I repeat this till I think they are sick of me you know basically <laughs> I keep saying all writing is revision all writing is revision I mean that that is like the the mantra that people need to have because you know and students come into the classes thinking I've written this amazing piece. They're in that love, that in love mm. mode, you know. And so, and for me to stand there and say, okay, great. Now let's take, this is a draft. 
you're in a process, it's always process writing, you know. So mm-hmm. take it back and here's, you know, let's look at it again and again. And I, I do a lot of stuff with them too. So the way, I mean, just take a step back. Um, I sort of teach from a place of like um, that writing is a skill that can be taught, you know. I think it was mm-hmm. David Bartholomew who said, it's it's a, it's not a privilege of caste like you know that people mm-hmm. think of writing as a privilege of caste as like it, all the mythic things that people tell each other about oh it just comes to me as an inspiration this that and the other and so i think for me i always try to say that this is a skill that can be learned and here are the techniques that you can use to make your writing better you know mm-hmm. my whole approach is very like here are techniques Let's peel back the the back of the clock and look inside. And this is what was used to make this piece the way it looks. And you can you have access to these skills, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I mean the proof is in the pudding. I mean at the end of the semester, their writing is so much better because they actually <laughs> learned how to you know uh, put those mm, skills, um, those techniques into actually on, onto their own writing, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like that. It feels like a, a, a more optimistic way of thinking about writing than I think <laughs> a lot of us writers turn out to be pessimists. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. That, that um, it is something that you can sort of isolate and dissect. Mm-hmm. Um, even if that's not terribly romantic, it is true. <laughs> I know it is not romantic, but the final piece is romantic. It's gorgeous because you did the yeah. work, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I, there's like things like, you know, um, like sort of making them stop, like taking one line and saying, I, I do this thing called blow up, which is basically say like, you know, if you have an emotion in a line, I'm, I'm like, okay, stop here. Now blow this up, you know, basically write more about this, this moment right here. Then let's like engage all the senses. Let's dig deep into what you are actually mm-hmm. feeling. You know, um, how did the world look from that emotional point of view that at that moment you know so i make them do a lot of that kind of thing where you know Mm -hmm. maybe identify where it could be blown up or where it could be shortened like i don't need you to tell me how you took a taxi to the airport you know let's just get to the airport (laughs) (laughs) so there's there's a a lot of those kinds of things that we do um it's very much uh, a sense of like you need to get in there and sort of manipulate it all you you can you need to get in there and break it open and then put it back to put it back together again and the more we do that then they get used to that you know there otherwise it's like oh my writing is untouchable this gorgeous piece i can never touch it and then by the end of it they're like revising on their own which i love that mm. yeah oh i love that idea of blowing it up um yeah that sounds so useful i'm gonna have to try it <laughs> um so I was also kind of, you know, I was, you know, I first met when when I spoke to your MFA class at Brooklyn College, mm-hmm. and it, it was such a good time. I, I love doing that kind of thing, um, and I know that you've you've taught creative writing for for many many years. I, I was kind of wondering what what do you feel like your students are doing, like what the young people are writing now that that feels sort of new and fresh or different to you. Um, and also, I was kind of wondering if there are certain things that they they seem to struggle with, you know, like. Uh, Kind of like the example you were just giving of, of sort of like what what do you feel like you have to push them on? I mean, on revision, yes, and uh, <laughs> and also on being vulnerable on the page. 
you know mm-hmm. it's it's a there's a there's a difference between uh kind of being what can i say like sentimental and then being vulnerable so so i think i feel like sometimes the writing gets to be very maudlin kind of you know because i think i mean this generation is growing up on like television and screens and screens and screens so they're mm-hmm. getting like a very mediated experience um and and i kind of feel like sometimes that sort of just translates onto the page in a very kind of superficial way and um so i i do think that sometimes we have to yeah, i have to say like the the like forget all these words that you're using you know just sort of stop and think about how you were feeling how emotion is manifested in your body for instance um you know i there's a lot of that right like think about how emotion is manifested in the body that how it is how how violence feels in your body or when you're watching violence how it feels like mm. be aware of what it's doing to you or if you're feeling sad what is it doing to you so some of that it's a kind of a deepening that needs to be done i think and so there i mean i think what's really fresh is is how they are using language it's really really mm. interesting um ways of using language i mean especially i mean the mfa students that i worked with the the class you came to they were at an amazing level of 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 mm. um, like just sentence level is gorgeous you know um but sometimes structure um needs to be sort of overlaid on where all these sentences are going and what are they saying um mm. that kind of thing but they they um i mean i'm always fascinated by the the kind of i guess the experiences that they are trying to bring to the page is i mean for those are experiences that i may never have right because i right. i'm not their age and i'm i'm not from where they're from so yeah there there are there, there are interesting things i think that the most interesting thing to me for for me is what they're doing with language actually is is the the at the sentence level there are some gorgeous things that they're doing i mean that's i find that encouraging because i always feel that is the hardest part to teach mm-hmm. or or something that is so personal and comes so naturally from the person you know things like rhythm and sound yeah. and that kind of thing yeah. so that's that's nice to hear yeah mm-hmm. structure you can teach them yes i know <laughs> structure and also like um a kind of creating an emotional complexity on the page is also something that you mm-hmm. know we uh, we try to teach but yeah yeah i feel like we are often giving notes when we're reading you know really fantastic submissions that they just um sometimes they're staying a little bit too much on the surface which mm-hmm. kind of, i think kind of fits with what you're saying and, yeah. and you just need a few moments maybe a little more interiority or or where where can we go a little deeper on this and and, and get a little closer to home yeah yeah and i also i mean i i always feel that the the like the emotional tenor of of the piece is not palpable enough it's not tangible you know i want to feel it in your bones kind of thing you know i want to see that like the put the, like the flesh and blood of it i just i don't i don't see that or it, i mean sometimes you really have to push to get there you know mm-hmm. yeah um i also read in your bio that you used to run fordham university's summer study abroad program in london mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, yeah. and i think that sounds like so much fun i mean like i said i i i went to london i, I was a study abroad student many many years ago so I, i was just wondering if you could talk about what it was like running the program yeah i i didn't i was the writer in residence at at okay. uh, fordham for three years and uh, as part of the writer in residence program you were 
encouraged to take students to London. Um, and uh, oh my God, it was the best thing ever. <laughs> I mean, because so we had a unlimited cultural budget. <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> so I would just like have to find things to take them to and, uh, and just, you know, just, I, I would just throw myself into like the cultural offerings in, 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 in London. It was so amazing because you had all the alternative theater and then you had the Globe and Shakespeare mm-hmm. and then like, you know, on this, like all the stuff in South Bank, which was very, very different from what was happening in the mainstream theater. Mm-hmm. So I would just, we would go to so many performances and plays and okay. walks. And I mean, I did so many fun things. Like, so we would read Oliver Twist. So I taught a course called uh, Outsider in the City. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about uh, non-British writers or like outsider characters, uh, you know, how they saw London. So I would mm-hmm. teach Oliver Twist because, who, I mean, he's such an outsider too. Right. <laughs> and and then um, we would actually go to all the places with London walks that are mentioned in Oliver Twist. Mm-hmm. It was so amazing. And it, because yeah. you could sort of see Oliver disappearing into the streets and, you know, the people who were chasing him and all of that. It was really brilliant. I, I did so much of that stuff. It was great. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I mean, that was basically why I wanted to study abroad mm-hmm. in London. I wanted to, to read a book that was written in London and was about London and then walk around and be like, this is where that happened. Yes, it was so, yeah. it was so fun. And we would go, uh, you know, there's a famous scene in Oliver Twist where um, the the drovers bring the cows into this market, uh, Sheffield, mm-hmm. like, uh, I think it's called Sheffield, uh, market in, in London. And then they're you know, they're selling their cows and then they go and they have breakfast. And um, mm. and I think in, in one piece, he sells the wife also because he's fed up of the wife, like one of the drovers. <laughs> but so we did all of that. Like I would, we went there at six and then went and had the full English breakfast. Oh, nice. <laughs> and had the Guinness. I mean, I not with my students, obviously, but, you know, uh, <laughs> but this it was it was incredible it was so fun it was really lovely mm-hmm. i mean i got to know london so well it's such a walking city yeah. uh, it's beautiful yeah mm-hmm. yeah i find it to be just such a well welcoming city i, I love new york but I, I i you know i don't know yeah london just feels wide open in yeah. a way that i, I really I did love it. london i mean it was yeah. because i got to see it from a very very different way of looking at things because you know i would um i would take them to What's it called? Brighton? You know, now I'm forgetting. Like the coastal town? Uh, no, no. Um, to like the like the black areas of the city um, and and sort of walk around and eat Jamaican food and listen to the Jamaican Oh, maybe music. Brixton. Oh, Brixton, Brixton. <laughs> yes, yes. Brixton. Yes, yeah. It was so it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. It's a great place. Um, so I was wondering just if you could tell us what you're working on now, what's next from you? So I have, you know, the way I work, I have so many bits and pieces that are just I'm working on simultaneously, because as I said, I work very slowly. So I have a couple of things that I'm working on. One is a short story that is about a woman who who sits set in Jackson Heights, and it's a woman mm-hmm. who sees a man in the elevator and suddenly is struck by the revelation that he's the angel Gabriel or Gabriel. Mm-hmm. 
Right. She's convinced that this bureaucratic looking man is actually the <laughs> angel Gabriel. Gabriel, And so I'm sort of, I've been working on that story for a long time. And and then what happens, right? When when mm-hmm. she's convinced that he's this, and maybe he is, and I don't, I'm never going to tell you whether he is or he is not. <laughs> so I'm working on that. And then okay. I've been working on a, a few essays and one essay that I'm, I'm working on. I don't know if that's an essay or it's like, I don't know what it is. It's like some weird piece, um, but it is basically <laughs> about a man who's um, on the, it's the experience of someone watching their father die uh, mm-hmm. because he's under a DNR, you know, do not resuscitate. Right. Yeah. Uh, and just like that moment of what it means to be there as you watch your um, mm. your relative die. And and um, it's sort of very rooted in the body, in both their bodies. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm just writing that. that. That's been, that's another thing that I'm writing. Mm, that sounds like very, very rich material. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Mira Nair, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been so, so great to talk with you. Really fun. Yeah. Thank you, Emily, for having me. Listeners, you can read Mira's essay and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.